to What Goes Around with me, Eamon Murtar. And me, Anne Frankenstein. And in this week's episode, we look at the shady, slippery, slightly shiny-faced world of exercise and music. We also get our regular roundup from Eamon Murder of the hot docs, which are circulating around the internet this week. That sounds like a curious website in which you uh, attempt to date medical professionals. But let's move on. Also, our guest this week is the fabulous Ben Ayres from one of Britain's greatest indie groups ever, Corner Shop. We talked to Ben about collecting records, about mild obsession, about having a surprise number one single, and generally about being one of John Peel's favourite bands and how they just can't stop making amazing music. 30 years on, 30 years. Let's get into it. Shall we pod? Let's do this thing. Let's do the pod thing. You got this pod. You got got this pod. (laughs) DJ Anne Frankenstein, what is going around? What's going around are my chunky little legs. On my new Peloton bike, which I bought just over a week ago now. I... Come on, Peloton, you got this! <laughs> I am regressing from a freaky little kid into mm. the world's most basic bitch as I get older. This, this is who I am now, and I'm going to embrace it. Um, yes, I am one of those awful people who has a Peloton now, and... I um, can't stop talking about it or thinking about it. It's all I talk <laughs> and I, make about it. Can I ask you a question? Please. Have you got this? <laughs> you bet. Well, not quite, but I'm getting there. I thought this everything to say is like, have you got, you got this? You got this? Yeah, Come on. But you know, it's, it's like I'm so susceptible to that. And it's weird because, well, let me just, uh, let, let me pull it back. Let me pull it back for a minute, Peloton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, wait, wait, wait. Wind the bicycle yes, back. Yes, I will. So, so Peloton, for those who don't know, is this, um, it's like a stationary spin bike that you get for your house, but it's got a screen on it. And via the screen, you can tune in to all kinds of different spin classes. And there's a cult and, and other classes too. There's like yoga and strength and all of this other stuff. Um, but there's a cultish element to it, which has made it a commercially successful thing, particularly in lockdown. Mm. Uh, and the, the cultish elements are to do with the fact that the instructors just make it seem like it's a really fucking big deal that you're cycling on a stationary bike. (laughs) Which I like because at the time when you're doing it and you're real, you're sweating and you're real, you know, you're going for it and stuff. It does feel like a fucking big deal. Outside of the context of being on the bike, you're like, I cycled for half an hour on a stationary bike, big deal. But yeah, somehow the instructors just elevated to this thing where it makes you feel like you are just about to take over the world by really? cycling on this stationary bike. I can't, I, I, there's something inside, I can't fall for that kind of motivational chat. It just, yeah. I just want to say, matter of fact, once when I, uh, I had my knee done, mm. I basically I bust my knee, so I'm useless anyway, I can barely walk. Um, but uh, I, I, when I was getting ready for the operation, I had to do loads and loads of physio. And there was one young kid. He was about, he was about 18, like proper fresh out of college kind of thing. And uh, and he was, you know, he was ordering me about and making me do all the work. And I was working really hard because I do, you know, I, I took it quite seriously. But there was one day where I'd done some stuff and I, I, I'd worked really hard and I'd gone really well. And then just out of the blue, he went, OK, that's great, Amy, that's great. Now drop down and give me 10. And I just looked at him and went, no. <laughs> Why would I do that? Why well, I'm supposed yeah. to be fixing my knee, idiot. <laughs> See, this is the thing. I would definitely have thought of myself as a person who's not susceptible to all the bullshit. And I mean, I saw the the ads and stuff, you know, that awful, nauseating yeah. ad that was before Christmas. You got this! The scared woman who was like, oh my God, my boyfriend got me a Peloton. But yeah, that advert was outrageous. It, it was, was just so like, bad. oh my God, I'm fat and ugly. My husband will never love me unless <laughs> I do. And does he say something really crap at the end? It's like, oh, you're something not fat really <laughs> The irony being, of course, that my boyfriend would probably break up with me if I talk about my Peloton any more than I already do. Um, but yes, I mean, that ad was on a par with that awful 
beautiful fucking Pepsi ad with Kendall Kardashian or whoever it was creating oh, world the, peace. The one where she brings world peace by <laughs> yeah. giving, giving away a soft beverage. Basically, yeah. <laughs> but but here's the thing. I built up to it. I've never been an exercise person. I've done boxing on and off for like the past nine years, but that's just because I'm an angry person and I need yeah. that catharsis. Um, I've kind of gotten into exercise in a serious way over the past year and it's been this slow progression towards getting this bike for ages i was using a normal stationary bike with the app blah 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 anyway eventually i decided to invest in this thing and because i've made this investment um it it makes me feel like i just want to absorb every single last fucking drop of the nonsense that they talk but anyway what does this have to do with music well well i i I, I know miss i know i'll put my hands on yeah because they're being sued aren't they Yes, there's a long uh, court case that's been going on for uh, several years now because they the music is a really big deal part of the workout and there'll be spin classes that are that are themed based on music. There's like country rides and EDM rides and there's a UK garage ride, which is coming (laughs) out. I mean, I'm naming the the bat, although I wouldn't mind a country ride. Oh, mate. I mean, that just sounds... First of all, they're making you like work really hard and sweat, and it's hard work and difficult. It's a pleasure, and then they, they compound that pain and upset by <laughs> by deciding what you listen to on an EDM soundtrack. It like, makes just, it makes ugh. such the music makes such a huge difference. There's been rides that I've had to give up on because there's just been dirge on the playlist, particularly yeah. rock rides. They're really not ashamed of dropping in a bit of Nickelback or something else equally <laughs> offensive. <laughs> I'm out. I'm out. Yeah, but there is there. So there's this one instructor who I'm obsessed with called Hannah Frankson who's from Essex she lives in East London I'm hoping I might bump into her one day but she's really cool she sounds like you could go out stationary bike riding oh stop (laughs) I I would have to join the queue there there's like this obsessive Facebook group um, who just talk about her all day long which I've I've joined and it's quite it's quite scary (laughs) you really have gone for this not just me she's just someone telling you to do she's so fucking cool she's so cool she's like an old school pirate radio dj like she's got i'm not going to do the the voice but she's properly like what you know about that peloton like she's really right. all up in your your grill like with yeah. her enthusiasm she has like a uk garage ride coming up soon her music choices are really cool and uh yeah it's just full-on idol worship i haven't felt this way since the brit pop years of the mid 90s <laughs> i would put a poster of her up on my wall if uh i felt like I, if, if tim would if tim would, she would let you, me yeah. Um, so yeah so the music makes a big difference and I can see why they're getting sued because I don't know what license they have my my understanding is that they just don't have one they just yeah which is weird because like they're linked up with Spotify like you can make Spotify playlists based on the selection of the And it's, it's funny, like the music is a big focus. And obviously last week I went off on a huge rant about being subjected to other people's music. Somehow and here you are body... volunteering for I it. No, but this is when my body and brain are sort of distracted by massive <laughs> physical exertion. I don't have the rage. This is maybe it'll help me work through my rage doing this Peloton thing. Yeah, maybe. I think I think that's a tall order for anything. <laughs> it's, there's a lot of rage to work through there. I think you'll need you'll need more than a stationary bike. Yeah, yeah. But it is it is weird. And the other thing about it is that it makes me a better radio DJ. So Does like, it? yeah. So all of these. Hannah Frankson, my favorite instructor, is so good with the ad libs. Her brain just works so fast. She would be like the next Terry Wogan. I talk, I, Terry Wogan is my, like, that's who I use now, as the aspirational could, figure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if I could do a Peloton, I would I would like to have Terry Wogan. Because like, it wouldn't be like really heavy. You wouldn't get super sweaty. You'd just have a nice gentle ride through But also, through imaginary he'd, be, countryside. he'd be taking the piss out of you. He'd be taking the piss out of Peloton. Just oh, gently, he'd be oh, the he'd dream be to be the to, to be to have the Mickey take from you by a master like absolutely. Tezza was. Absolutely. I mean, Tezza was a he's the he was the don. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do you know he did his radio show uh, for oh, I don't know forty years or something. Mm. Never had a script. Mm. Never had a script. Never had anything written down. Just used to walk in and talk rubbish. That's I what love I do. That I don't guy. have anything written down. I've seen you. <laughs> I don't write things down. No, I just listen, everyone's going to believe that you don't write things down. That's fine. I don't. <laughs> I, know, I know, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, Obviously. I see what you're saying, yeah. <laughs> I do. Mainly, I just look out the window and talk about the geese. And if I could, if I was allowed to, 
I would talk about the Peloton. And we better move on from this subject now because I swear to God, I'll never stop. Wait till you... You won't recognise me. I'm so buff now. I saw a picture of you the other day and I had to say, where's the rest of her gone? (laughs) You're shrinking, my darling. Yeah, well, it's weird. One thing I'll say about that is that, like, I wish I had more control over where it's going from because my... My face is still a, a little round, chubby, terrific thing. My my collarbone and my clavicles could cut glass. I could take a man's eye wow. out with these things. Jesus. But uh, anyway, that's the power of Peloton. Are you convinced? Uh, absolutely not. Eamon Murtagh, tell me what goes around in your world of documentary watching prowess documentary roundup there's some good ones it's a really good time this uh, haven't been so many brilliant documentaries coming out in ages it, there's so many i haven't even had time to watch whiplash oh that's a poor excuse but anyway go on <laughs> no but there it is it's a glorious time i don't know what's in the air but suddenly we're just being surrounded by loads of great great content so uh, last night I watched um, the Madness documentaries. It's, it's a three-part series. Uh, it's called Before We Were We. Uh, and it's uh, you can watch it for free on YouTube. It's out there. Just go and find it. I think originally it was on BT, but now it's, it's out on the interwebs. And it was just a really excellent look at uh, not what happened in madness but how they got to the point of being madness it starts off with you know with them all at school and recounting their school days and their their home lives and to be honest you know these these were a bunch of um you know these are poor kids from broken homes uh you know in the rough parts of london they and go into really vicious sounding schools um you know they, they were not pretending to um, to represent the working class skeezers. Mm. They definitely were those working class skeezers, or at least the geezers who had no work to do in that class, if you know what I mean. I think I've told you this before, but the, the first album I ever bought was a Madness cassette tape. I think it was Complete Madness. And um, I fancied every single one of them. Mm. Well, they, they, they haven't aged quite so well. <laughs> I'll be the judge of that. Thanks. I think a couple, couple of them could do with a go in the peloton if you're <laughs> Um, but, um, you know, they're, they're, they're quite old men now. But they really did kind of um, work themselves loose from, you know, what should have been and probably was by their own admission uh, and for a lot of their friends, uh, essentially a slow drift into a life of crime. Mm. And they managed to get out by forming this band and working really hard at it. And I think that was one of the interesting things is that they, you know, they, they kind of they found their little niche started playing it and then a couple of them just went no we can do this mm. and they really forced the others to get into it and it's just a lovely way these seven people from quite difficult backgrounds all managed to come together and make their own little family together and and they found this weird scar music which wasn't that popular at the time do you know what i mean it was like round punk and all that sort of stuff um, and then weirdly they discovered that there was a load of people in coventry in the midlands who were doing the same thing. Mm. And then they all got together and did the two-tone tour. And it was just, it was a lovely thing where they kind of, um, they found their people and they found their audience. And it's really well told in the documentaries. They they take their time. What's nice about this, they haven't tried to squish everything into an hour and a bit. It's it's three hours, it's like a series. And and they, they start from the very early days and then the actual, you know, the nuts and bolts of getting the band together and learning instruments and actually doing it. And then the last one was kind of about the the two-tone tour and the way that suddenly all their dreams started to come true because Mm. that tour was amazing. You know, you had the specials, them and the selector. They were all like teens, basically. Most of them weren't, weren't even out of their teens. And then within that year, they were doing their tour of England and they all had hits. Selector had had top 40 hits, the specials had top 40 hits, and Madness had top 40 hits. And it was just lovely to see these guys, to be honest, break out of of where society was going to squish them. Do you know what I mean? And they, they really found and carved their own niche. And it's so unusual to have a band, a seven piece band, get that in your head, seven people. They're still together. 
That so is crazy. I was going to say, like, you're telling this. I I plan to watch this uh, this um, documentary too, and I was imagining like you were talking about how nice it is and how all, there are all these lovely moments, and I'm thinking like, come on, there must have been at least a period where some of them fell out or they got sick of each yeah. other or a yeah. couple of them got booted out or you know. I mean, quite literally, there was the odd fight and stuff. And, yeah. and you know, their, their original drummer got kicked out because he, he couldn't learn a, a particular fill. And one of the, one of the band members just launched himself at him and punched him in the rehearsal. <laughs> so, I can imagine yeah. that being really frustrating, actually. <laughs> yeah, it, did, it did sound quite annoying. But, you know, they, they basically... Um, they came together and obviously there's, when you've got seven personalities, there is going to be trouble. But the documentary kind of looks at the time before they, you know, right up to the point where they were making it and on top of the pops. But then there's another 25 years of madness that comes after that, do you know what I mean, where they were still yeah. making hits and all that sort of And I think during that time, they definitely had big fallings out and they split up and I think Suggs and another one, uh, Chaz, I think it was, uh, did the madness for a while i did a couple of singles out of the madness which is a bit more downbeat and uh, didn't didn't do that well i don't think mm. but they got back together and they're still together and they've done these amazing amazing festivals the madstock festivals um and it's just lovely to have these guys all together all looking back on their on their memories and their times and um and you've got a, a definite feeling of like completion about this documentary it was like these guys it's like they they climbed to the top of the mountain and they were just happy to sit and tell you about the journey up there and i really really enjoyed the honesty and and the music the music was amazing i just, love their music it's they are really one of the most the test of time absolutely the most underrated bands around mm. because because they're silly and because you know they, they had the funny videos and that sort of thing i think they don't get the props they deserve mm. um, for me the rise and fall by madness is right up there with the first specials album it's it's up there with the smiths it's up there with all sorts of that 80s kind of um very english way of looking at things do you know what i mean they they were sure they were playing scar but their songs were about english life and and the things that were going on around them at that time very honest very poetic actually and they don't get the props for that People only ever yeah. talk about the silly videos and the, you know, the antics. So. And it's weird even that this documentary was on BT and now it's on YouTube. Why wasn't it on the, you know, it's, no idea. It's got, on the beep. I'm very glad it slipped into YouTube because, you know, that's uh, that's lovely free content. <laughs> <laughs> Do you love some free content? What we're going to, what we're going to, what we're going to do right here is go back. Way back, back into time. That's right. Name that tune. Name that tune. Today we are delighted to have one of the founding members of legendary British indie group Corner Shop appearing on the podcast. Currently celebrating their 30th year together, Corner Shop are positively flourishing with their latest album, their ninth, England is a Garden, being one of the highlights of 2020, a year, let's face it, which had precious few highlights to boast of. They may be best known for their number one single, A Brimful of Asher, but that hardly begins to tell the story of one of the UK's most consistent and thought-provoking bands. It's our great pleasure to welcome musician Ben Ayres on the podcast. Hi there. Well, it's lovely to have you here today. I have to say you are the saviour of my brain because in the first lockdown, luckily, your album came just as it was uh, kicking in. And I think without it, I'd have gone completely bonkers. And it's so lovely to have you on because you have been going around for a long time and you've made many great tracks that I've really enjoyed over the years. So it'd be lovely to talk to you about it. Oh, thanks. Thanks very much. Yeah, I mean, the, the latest album took us quite a long time to make. So it was a it was quite a relief to get it out and we've been really bowled over by the reaction generally yeah. and a beautiful thing as well a lovely packaging and you know colored vinyls and all that yeah that's the thanks largely to um nick edwards who is our sort of art designer yeah. uh, we've worked with him since the mid 90s so he's incredible mm -hmm. marvelous and my favorite thing about it actually was when i ordered it it didn't get delivered by a postman it got delivered by a woman walking her dog 
<laughs> that's quite something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether that was, you know, just like, oh, Maureen, you going by? Yeah, take that, you know. But uh, it was quite a nice little summer's evening. We just sat out there and there it was. Lovely. So thank you <laughs> well, very much. That's the personal that. touch we like to, to do, you know, when we when we can. Uh, Maureen, you got to put her to work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did it feel kind of um, fortuitous? Because if you're making the album for a long time, you couldn't possibly have known. The, the, the state that the world would be in by the time you were ready to, to send it out. Do you think people were kind of more receptive to it because everyone had a bit more time to sit and listen properly and a- appreciate the sort of emotional resonance of it? I think maybe as time went on after it was released, yeah. But I mean, the initial reaction was before the, the strange pandemic mm-hmm. scenario really kicked in. So um, a bit of both, really, I think, you know. But um, yeah, we've. We were really happy with um, a lot, lot of kind things that people have said about it, and how that a lot of people have said that they've um, they keep going back to it, which is a great thing, and that it's been helping them through such a tough time. So, yeah, you couldn't ask for more than that, really. Yeah, I was just chatting to you as well before uh, we got into this about uh, it's kind of meta, really, because previously on this podcast I told the story of a mortifying incident for a friend of mine who. <laughs> <laughs> we saw you guys DJing at the social upstairs and uh, he was a big fan and he reached across the the, uh, the decks to shake your hands and knocked the uh, the needle right off the record. Um, but I wonder, because that wasn't, I'm, I'm really bad at chronology, but that can't have been too long before. It, that was the launch of the album, I think, wasn't it? it when you it, were, was a, yeah. it was a little celebration we were having for the launch of the album, yeah, on... I think it was on the day of release, the 6th of March. Yeah. Uh, right on the cusp of it all then. Yeah, yeah, it definitely was, yeah. Yeah, I'd just like to say on the record as well that, you know, no problem with your friend knocking the record. It's lovely to shake his hand. <laughs> no, you were so nice about it. You were so nice. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I uh, like I say, his, his mortification levels were kind of sliced in half by how gracious <laughs> you guys were about it. But but tell me about, about the DJing side of, or tell us about the DJing side of things then, because you must be missing that a lot. It's been nearly a year since that gig yeah well it's not something i do professionally really it's just mm. a, a bit of sort of amateur uh, fun that i i do with a friend of mine called richie and like my um long friendship with tajinda my bandmate in corner shop uh we've kind of got got uh, friendly over music you know and um we like a lot of the same music and we've just found opportunity to play old soul records and in the past, more eclectic sets as well. Yeah, well, it is, it is a, a lovely way to spend an evening, I find, just throwing some throwing some Definitely. tunes out. It's and a good uh, excuse to hear a load of songs you you really love very loud as well. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And some songs only come to life when you play them loud. You know, some that's songs right, are... Yeah. They, they just sit there quietly. You're listening to them at home, they don't really do it. But as soon as you play them loud, it becomes a, a transformative thing that really lifts the whole whole room. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, I think I think the music from that that era as well, like um, late fifties, early sixties, it was made for to be played on forty five RPM singles. They blast out the speakers, the original pressings yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. So there's something to it's something to be witnessed, you know, hearing them like in that format. Yeah, I guess that's all down to the you know they were being made for those jukeboxes, weren't they, with the the one big speaker at the bottom that blast yeah. out. Yeah, and, and people's you... dance dance sets and stuff at home, and mm-hmm. you know they had to be. I think I don't know what happened with. I used to work in a vinyl factory. Um, wow. Years ago, yeah, before before uh, the band. Well, actually, when the band kicked off, I was having to work in the daytime at the record factory, and um, it was very much a factory. You know, it's like steam-driven presses and um, mm. very long hours and just endless cups of coffee in Hayes in Middlesex. Yeah, something happened with with the cut loudness of the cuts of records um after this the 60s i think where it just seems not quite as it wasn't yeah. pushed quite as hard until you get to some of the dance music where they deliberately cut things louder yeah i think there's a there's a raspiness to that um northern soul sound with the the mid-range really you know shouts at you screams in your face and uh, I, yeah. I, I, I work with a dj called Bo, and he, he always says uh, they're hot cuts man Hot yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the other thing was as well. A lot of the tracks from those times were like two minutes long. So yeah, you know. See, that's run... why I don't play it then. That's why I don't play it because if you're playing that kind of music, you can't go to the bar and you can't go to the toilet. And yeah, the, the, yeah. So I've, you have to I've, have two of you. 
<laughs> I found that once or twice when I've been stuck on my own um, for a while. It's just like fran absolutely frantic because you've literally got about <laughs> 30 seconds to pull out the next track. And if you're not sure, you can easily spin into um, chaos. Yeah, I have done that more than once. There's, I play at the uh, Blues Kitchen occasionally in Brixton. And mm -hmm. uh, the t the, it's like a long room and there's a stage at the end. But the toilet is at the far end of the room, up some stairs and round a corner. <laughs> and uh, I, I was trying to hold on. It was right at the end of the evening, you know, and I was on my own there. And uh, the single I had was the Nut Rocker, which is exactly two minutes long. Yeah. And I put it on and just drove myself like crazy, <laughs> ran my way through, scrambled up the steps, weed as fast as I could, came down, clipped the last step and kind of rolled down to the floor, <laughs> covered in blood and beer and mud. Oh, yeah. you know, I just got there for the end. So, you know, I, I counted it as a win. I bet you never thought you'd miss those days. <laughs> that's, that, that's true that's true the secret is though kids secret is have the other record ready so when you come back all you have to do is press play mm. yeah, don't, be, or, don't be trying to pull another record out then or just throw in a, a one or two long ones in, in yeah. the box i mean i i've been in that situation and um called upon um the long version of move on up by curtis Mayfield. Oh, that's the one times. that is yeah. the dj's friend that gives you plenty of time yeah, yeah. exactly yeah that and uh, rapper's delight always works a treat yeah. <laughs> you, you can write a book in the middle of that yeah <laughs> speaking of the the um, less glamorous side of working in music did you how did you end up working in a vinyl factory was that because you were interested in, was it just happenstance or did you think this will be fun i love vinyl i'll go and see how it's made well, it's a good question, actually. It's, I mean, when I left college, I came down to London because my girlfriend was down here, but I didn't have a job. And I quickly found out I needed to get some sort of job because it was so expensive mm. to live. And um, so I, initially I had a job. I got a weird job, job out of the paper driving a, a lorry around London. I'd never driven a lorry in London before. And it, I, it took me hours to get from place to place. And so that didn't last very long. Mm. But it was a steep learning curve. <laughs> and then um, one day my, my girlfriend, Kate, heard a radio advert for asking for, for looking for someone to work in a vinyl factory in North London called Lintone. And um, so I applied for it thinking I'd obviously not get it. Mm. And I, I'm, I managed to get an interview and got the job, which um, massively surprised me mm. and it was a Lintone was a great place it's it pressed seven inch records and made flexi discs in the 60s oh, flexi discs. Um, it, it was based just off the holloway road and it's where they press pre, in, incidentally it's where they press the beatles um sort of christmas flexies and records They're amazing yeah. i'd have been digging around in the back rooms trying to find if any old stock was knocking around yeah, was there any old stock <laughs> knocking around or was it literally well, just the, yeah. there there was a filing cabinet with samples of of past things but um, there's a lot of stuff missing mm, as I'll you bet. might imagine bet, yeah. <laughs> so you really have seen it from the from the sharp end and and the more beautiful end of being the artist yourself that's a, that's a good 360 look and and uh, do you say you work for rough trade now as well yeah, I, I, I've worked at Rough Trade Records since 2002, a really long time. But it's a lovely place and really great people. So mm. um, it, in a way, it doesn't feel like work. Or it's it's like one of those jobs that you love doing. So, I mean, the whole reason I got I um I went for the vinyl job was because I didn't know anything I would like to do other than I was just a massive freak for records and mm. music and bands and stuff. And uh, so I was kind of really quite lucky to. I managed to find something up, well, get a job doing something I liked, I suppose. Did it take any of the magic? You know, if you were already a a, a mad record collector, did it mm. sort of take some of the magic out of it, seeing how it was all made? And like you said, I mean, you said it was very much a, a factory, like a, yeah. rather than a, you know. It was actually a really hard job. I mean, mm. it was very, very stressful. Um, you'd get shouted at most days for, for things not being made on time. It was a, It was a main seven inch factory for making um all warner brothers records so mm. at the time i mean the first week or two i was there we were pressing thousands of madonna seven inches and De delight um went went to number two i think um mm. the next week and what would happen is you'd get all these orders that had to be made overnight for the next day and of course mach the machines were really old steam driven things and they'd go they get broken and break down and then next thing you know you're coming in at nine o'clock and getting all this bad news and people at the record companies just freaking out at you oh god <laughs> um 
so yeah it was um it was up and down you know it was, it was really interesting and i loved it and you got to take a few records home and stuff in terms of like uh learning a lot in a short space of time it was good it was a time of rave as well so you'd get all these mm. strange characters coming in and pressing rave 12 inches and that basically kept the whole industry afloat for a few years didn't it because uh, yeah as the, the single sales went down it was it was electronic music and people pressing up tiny little runs that kept a yeah. lot of those factories and cutting plants open for for the duration of the 90s really yeah i mean we had a we had like a few record companies like um i think i remember profile records and like I said, Warner Brothers and all their offshoots and a few other, Rhythm King and people like that. Mm. But uh, there was also just people that would come in off the street and say, oh, I want to make 500 copies of this record of my band. Mm. How do I do it? And we'd help them. Going back then to like pre-moving to London and um, starting work in this record factory, how did you become so enamoured with music and records and gigs and everything else? It's a good question, actually. Um, growing up, well, it's a long story, really, but I was born in Newfoundland in Canada to, wow. to British mm. parents. My mum and dad went over to Newfoundland in 67 mm. uh, because my dad was offered a job at the university there. Me and my sisters were born in Canada, Newfoundland, mm. and then we were brought back to the UK in something like 76 to go to specifically to go to school in the UK because thought the schools were better over here when we did that we ended up living with my grandparents and my uncle in in Torbay near Torquay mm. my uncle was really into music he'd been in a like a garage band in the in the 60s and um, he just started playing me you know early Dylan and um, the Kinks and Beatles and some of the Beatles films were being re-shown on TV in the 80s around that time and really fell for that. Otis Redding and people like that. And I, I just really got into it. And then I started dis discovering, um, I suppose, what you'd call independent music. And did you find did you find <clears throat> your sort of niche in terms of like peers and stuff? Were you making mixtape for friends and things like that? Did you find friends who also were into collecting records? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, there was... Uh, I suppose at school it was like more one or two kids in the year above. A friend's older brother did me a cassette compilation of The Kinks, mm. which absolutely blew my mind. It's like all their greatest tracks on two sides of a tape. And mm. um, and that it was that sort of ex uh, experience that just made me think, oh, wow, what else is out there? And then mm. I started going to record shops and <laughs> there's no turning back. And now, yeah. now I've got a house full of records. <laughs> <laughs> no regrets. Yeah. And how did the um, how did that lead into the into the band? Was that all part of the same same sort of? Well, momentum? I suppose it was just a similar sort of uh, mindset. When I went to college, I deliberately wanted to go somewhere that was nothing like South Devon because, as a youngster into music and bands, there's no bands playing down there really. By the time mm. I was there, although there was a place in Torquay where a lot of reggae bands used to play, because Haile Selassie once visited Torquay. Wow. Well, actually, he once lived there. He once lived there. Really? Um, yeah. Um, I think he, had, he was in exile there briefly. Um, and <laughs> I think he chose the area. Just This is going off on a tangent, but he chose the area because um, some very early remains of, of early man that I think could be traced to Ethiopia were found in um, a place called Kent's Cavern. As sidetracking goes, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I wanted to get away anyway. There's nothing going on down there. So I went, I decide, decided to apply for degree courses in, in industrial towns in the north um, mm. where I might see some of the indie bands I was hearing on John Peel and stuff, like mm. The Fall and stuff. I nearly went to, to Newcastle, but I ended up going to Preston in Lancashire. And uh, I think the first day I moved into the sort of student accommodation, a house thing, I met Tajinda. And uh, within a few weeks of going out and drinking and talking, and we, we realised that we had uh, a lot in common musically. It's amazing to meet someone at that age and continue. I mean, is it 20 years? Is it 28 years? It's, uh, you know, <laughs> whatever. Well, I, can't, I can't add it up properly, but it's from, I mean, I met Tajindra probably in 87. Oh, wow. OK. Yeah, so it's a long time. Yeah. It's kind of amazing to have a shared vision that is sort of stood the test of time mm. um did you expect for it to go on for so long did it feel so comfortable that, that you were sort of like you know this is i'm in this for the long term you must be best pals 
Yeah, we, we, we really get on well. And, um, you know, there's been ups and downs. But, you know, there's been some difficult times in the past. You know, we like all sorts of music. There's country artists that we both like. There's reggae artists that we both like. Um, rock and roll, um, soul. It's, it's, it's hard to describe, really. I think it's just something that's just... We've taken the friendship and, and the mutual enthusiasm day by day, really. It's, it's only like after decades you think, oh... Wow, we <laughs> really did connect time. quite well there. <laughs> <laughs> I always think you were one of those bands that were kind of, I mean, you really were, you were kind of the epitome of, of the real indie scene for me. You know, you, you had this really great, cool outlook. You produced really nice records. They weren't, they weren't ever going to be that kind of mainstream stuff. There was always something interesting going on. You were kind of left field even for the indie scene. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And one thing I always wondered was what, what was it like when suddenly that remix happened, the Fatboy Slim remix of Brimful of Asher, and you were number one? Because that mm. must have been a bit of a left turn for you. Yeah, I guess it was really. I mean, we, in terms of the first thing you were saying about um, left field, even for an indie artist, I think that might be because we we were deeply into a lot of independent music and quite mm. discerning in our taste of so-called independent music and guitar bands and stuff like that and, and that was kind of defined by us not liking a lot of stuff you know yeah um and, and therefore it given us a clear idea of what we didn't want to sound like and at the same time seeing from a lot of the bands we did like that one of the most important things is to to do something that's your own thing but your own sound yeah. and just not just copy something else too much mm. you know so that's what we tried to do. You say so you, you had a very clear idea of where you were going and what you wanted to do. Did did that sudden kind of once removed fame, uh, how did that hit you and how did that make you feel? And did that change the way you were doing the music or put more pressure on it? Or was it just nice to have a number one? It, well, the latter, really. I mean, it was <laughs> it was actually, I mean, we loved the mix for a start when, yeah. when we first heard it. When we first heard it, nobody knew that it was going to do anything, but we mm. had we we'd been into um, nor, what Norman Cook was doing, and you know I'd I'd bought some of his Pizza Man, twelve inches, and yeah, uh, we were very much into that sort of uh, heavy sort of big beat hip hop uh, sort of stuff. So when we heard the mix, we thought it was absolutely brilliant, and and we we were very happy for it to be, you know, for a few white labels to be made and sent out to DJs and clubs and stuff. We thought mm. it was great. But we thought it was just—I suppose—we thought it was just like a, a, a just another sideline of what was going on in terms of the the band pushing, for, trying to push forwards. We were at the same time we were we were being asked to tour America more and more, sometimes three times a year, like coast to coast and then back again. Mm. And so it felt like there was a lot of positive momentum going on from all directions. So when that track really connected at radio and in the clubs as well. I mean that that all happened when we were on tour in America with Oasis, so it was building and building, and um, yeah, so it kind of felt um, not expected, but it didn't feel unnatural at the time as well. It's freaky to have a number one, that's yeah. for sure. I, I, it's the kind of thing you kind of you dream of in the back of your head. I don't know. I just I, I, it just seemed it was it was so big. I, I, mm. You must have been protected from it somewhat because you were in America at the time, but. I mean, here you couldn't move for it. And actually still, it's a bulletproof record. I, you could play it any week and everyone will be getting down to it and singing along. And, you know, it's one of those ones I, I have a little side pocket in my record bag and it's one of the ones that goes in there in case I get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of those Rescue the Dance Floor type tracks. Apologies if you get asked this all the time, but it is it's such a, an interesting subject to talk about because you had carved out your own little niche there. And then mm. did you end up sort of playing these gigs where everybody wanted to hear this this track? And, it you know, was that was that strange to suddenly have your your fan base extended out into the mainstream yeah i suppose it was that there was obviously what goes with the terrain is that you get a lot of people that only know that track mm. um, but we didn't really we didn't really play ball too much with that we we for a start when we played live we played it we played our original slower version yeah um, which no doubt annoyed a lot of people <laughs> um, it's your track don't you want yeah <laughs> and it's gorgeous i mean the original yeah, yeah, is, absolutely. A, is a beautiful track in itself yeah, well, we were pleased with it. And, when, and the thing we were really pleased about the original version was that it was um, number one in John Peel's 
festive. Yes, that's that's what I remember you see, is I remember that kind of level of indiness in it and John Peel playing it and it being like a, this cool laid back track. And then all of a sudden it was just huge, huge, huge. And I, you, I, you couldn't move for it, you know what I mean? It was like it was playing in Woolworths as you went past. And you know you've made it when you get played in Woolworths, although technically Woolworths is gone now. I miss their pick and mix. Very badly. Um, <laughs> should we get stuck into your phonographic memories then, Ben? Yes, although my memory is really, really quite poor, so <laughs> I'm not sure how photographic <laughs> this, this is going to be. But. And also, ter- I mean, Tajinda will tell you I'm terrible at telling stories as well because I forget what I'm talking about halfway through. <laughs> so we, we welcome tangents. Already yeah. you've given us a highly Selassie story, exactly. which no one expected. So we're, we're already yeah. lapping it up. But um, you know, having worked at both ends, from the from the heavy machinery to the finery of artistry, mm. you know, uh, how much did the, the music mean to you? And give us your first phonographic memory. I was just going to say, yeah, the, talking of heavy machinery, um, my yeah. first choice is Steppenwolf um, and a track called Magic Carpet Ride. Mm. My memory of this is linked to uh, Preston and uh, meeting to Ginger and us getting on and talking about music. Because we would set off from where we were based, uh, heading into town in Preston. And there's a pub on a road called Plungington Road in Preston called the General Havelock, which used to have a great jukebox. I mean, hopefully it still has. I don't even know if it's Mm. still there. But um, it was kind of like a a biker's pub, I suppose, a a little bit. And we'd call in there, put on um, Magic Carpet Ride, and that would propel us in the rest of the way into town. But it's such a great track. It's completely out there. Uh, and it really goes off into orbit and then crashes back. I love it. Mm. Yeah, it is. But I tell you what I really like about it as well is the um, the, the sort of fuzzing noise at the start. Yeah. Just before it kicks in. I, that just is like a portent of doom. It's great. Mm. Yeah. It's funny. Like we, I think listening to that track a lot together, we, we, we realised that we both liked something that was you know no one else was listening to them in mm. in Preston in in the student sort of world that we were in uh, but we realized that we, we um, shared a, a love of tracks like that that we thought were great but were probably a little bit obscure or um, off the beaten track My association with that track is that um, I used to play at the, I used to DJ at like the the indie night at my student bar because I went to university in London and um, I used to play that track and I mean it's such a funky track, it's like perfectly yeah. danceable and very accessible but yeah, usually went down like a lead balloon because everyone <laughs> wanted the libertines or whatever it was, so, so I relate to you, somewhere in another student bar there was someone yeah. else who was yeah. into that track too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it couldn't be more at odds with the kind of because I presume that was sort of late eighties when we had yeah. all the sort of jingly jangly C eighty six crowd still going along and all these yeah. twee little little drum machines and bands on Sarah Records and things like that. Uh, and that definitely isn't Steppenwolf. No, it's got a great riff as well um, at the, at the start. And um, you know, we we like a lot of of heavy rock, um, and it's been echoed a little bit in. In the, across the years on Corner Shop Records, another group that we both love is Mo- Motorhead. You can't go wrong with a bit of Motorhead. Sorts that sorts the crowd out. That one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Try that one at the student disco. <laughs> <laughs> if I had my time again, I'd torture them even more. There's a there's a heavy metal shop uh, at the top of Ackley Road called um, the Wizard's Crypt, which is a a brilliant name for a heavy metal shop. Uh, yeah. But it's also got a sticker in the front window that says if you don't like motorhead fuck off <laughs> uh, you know what you're getting into when you go into a shop that starts off like that but listen you've got um 
quite a, an array of tunes here. So mm. what about your second phonographic memory? Because uh, the, these are quite at an angle to Steppenwolf, I would say. Yeah, the, the second choice is a track by a Canadian group called The Hidden Cameras called Boys of Melody. And the reason I chose that one is because by uh, 2002, we were physically and mentally exhausted as a band. Mm. Uh, we'd been touring nonstop. There'd been, you know, uh, all sorts of stuff uh, that we were having to deal with. And we basically ground to a bit of a halt and cancelled some shows. And it was clear that there was going to be a bit of a pause before we could resume uh, band activities. Having a young family, I decided, well, I, I was worried that I needed to find some uh, sort of reliable income by finding a, a sort of job of some sort. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I spoke to a friend of mine who I who I knew, who used, he used to work at 4AD, but he was working at Rough Trade and he was called Colin Wallace. He was actually an ex-roadie of the Jesus and Mary chain. He he said, oh, why don't you come into to the office and... Um, and you can have a word with Jeff. So I went up to the Rough Trades office in um, Labrick Grove, and I said hello to Colin. I, I think I'd, I'd also asked for a copy of Jeffrey Lewis's first single, um, oh. the Chelsea Hotel Oral Sex Song, which um, is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> I've forgotten all about Jeffrey <laughs> yeah. Lewis. Oh, and what's I, that? The um, uh, Williamsburg, Will Oldham Horror. Oh, that's a great one as well. Yeah, yeah. So good. So I, so half the reason I went was just to get a copy of that single. But um, yeah, so I went up there, talked to Colin, and then I, I talked to Jeff, and he said, "I'll come into the office," and I was, went and sat down with him, and he played me the hidden cameras, and he said, "Oh, what do you think of this? Is we might be putting this out soon." And uh, I said, "I really liked it. It reminded me of the chills, actually." At the, mm. The, the jangle of it and stuff and we were talking for what seemed like hours about music it went all over the place but any, to cut a long story short anyway the next day he called me up and asked if I wanted to um, do press for Rough Trade and um, I've been doing it ever since as well as band doing the band so wow. there's that but but that that aside um, the other reason I've chosen this this song Boys of Melody by The Hidden Cameras which was on their debut album called The Smell of Our Own, which was the first record I worked on at Rough Trade, um, is because both my children absolutely love that record and, and in particular this song. And we'd play it on car journeys to see relatives time and time again. It was just, it's funny because I, I think it's a real lost uh, classic album. Every track on it is amazing. Far out at sea. things I did for it was because uh, I was just trying to t you know, tell journalists about it and get them into it but Tim Jones who's now at the Guardian he he mm. was at the enemy at the time he, I, <laughs> I managed to get him to um, cover one of their shows by dancing as a male go-go dancer blindfolded in his underpants <laughs> on the side of the stage <laughs> well that would work you know, yeah, yeah. It's like I've got a vision of Alan Partridge now in my head. It's kind of, you know. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's some. It's a lovely track. There's um, some xylophone on it, played by Maggie McDonald in in the group, which is very like Velvet Underground sort of mm. feel as well. It's a brilliant. They're a brilliant group. 
I tell you what as well, uh, one audience that you can never hoodwink or hard sell is children. They they like what they like, and if they don't like it, they will tell you. And I, basically, I used to have the run of my house playing my music all the time, and now I've got a little art critic sat in the corner going, no, Daddy, yes, Daddy, no, that one again, yeah. that one, you know. And if you can find something that you, you both enjoy, that is such a relief and such a joy as well, because, you know, you, it's... It, 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 their kind of enjoyment is a very pure enjoyment. It's not coloured by who's trendy or what label it's on or whether anyone else likes it. They just have that yes-no mentality to it all, and that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've I've deliberately played tracks to relatives that aren't really into music or only like mainstream music to mm. to get their feedback because it does give, help to give a good overview perspective. It must have been interesting, like when you had kids, because obviously your uncle had such a fundamental influence on your music taste. Did you feel tempted to sort of force certain music on your on your kids or shape their taste in any way? Not really, no. Um, I mean, obviously, I would play stuff I liked in the car, and sometimes I'd like it and stuff. Mm. But I think um, I think it's it's only right to let young, youngsters find their own way with music because music changes so much over time as well you know yeah that's true we've often talked about how some of the stigma associated with certain music fades away and then a new generation discovers it it doesn't really matter if it was cool at the time I'm, I say this to justify my love of Enya <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, that's the story I tell myself um but it must be interesting I mean how does because you know being in a band for so long and making music and also casually DJing but then also being on the marketing side of things with music too does the DJing and particularly the marketing inform the way that you make music now because I don't know I always feel like it it must there must be something in the back of your head thinking about how marketable something is if that's if that's another aspect of your career I've not really thought about it too deeply before but mm. i suppose subconsciously the the sort of tracks that i am drawn towards for their immediacy or effectiveness with djing must influence how i how i think about or give feedback when we're making songs and stuff yeah i suppose it's but it's hard to describe yeah i guess i just i find myself some uh, I don't know, I just feel a natural inclination to be a little bit more judgmental, <laughs> mm. you know, in terms of not so much marketing, but in terms of choosing stuff to play on the radio. It makes mm. me think that if I were to make music, I would find it really inhibiting <laughs> because I'm just thinking constantly about the end product and whether or not people would like it. Yeah, um, well, I mean, with 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 Corner Shop, we've always kind of operated outside of any uh, constraints, I suppose, mm. Um and and I suppose one of the things we've always done is let let the song dictate what it, it needs, sort of thing. So uh, you know we'll have a starting point. Tajinder will often have a, a great tune and lyrics, and then we'll it will kind of suggest itself what how it goes in terms of tempo and other instrumentation. Mm. Quite often, I guess over time, um, it's, it's kind of when when the music industry demystifies itself to you, and you really have seen all angles of it. There, there must that be the odd creeping moment when you start thinking, is, will this work in this context or whatever? But like you say, it feels like your music has always been, um, you know, it's always been its own thing in its own corner, really. And I think it's one of the nice things as well about the latest album is that it feels, this sounds stupid, but it feels so corner shop. Do you know what I mean? It, it's like, it feels like a real lineage from way back when. Mm. And it's kind of now got this sort of edge of reminds me a bit of T Rex a little bit. There's a little almost glam vibes in there. I mean, we're both massive um, T Rex Mark Boland fans, and and I could I could have easily I was actually thinking of choose, choosing one of his songs, um, but then I chose I went for Steppenwolf because it was such a memory of us going in the pub and listening yeah. to it. it. It propelled us on many a night out, you know. <laughs> well, that's what it's all about—the phonographic memories. So exactly. now. Yeah. Your third phonographic memory. I love this. I love this so much. I'd never heard this song before. 
really um, it's a corker uh, it's absolutely <laughs> brilliant and it's uh, it, it chosen the instrumental version so it's uh sing along without the j nets which I, yeah. which I also instinctively <laughs> like uh, as, a, as a sort of heading on YouTube. And then it's um, the instrumental background to Sally Go Round the Roses. And there's yeah. so much to love about this record. Please tell us about it. Yeah, well, this is one that was actually introduced to me by our sitar player, Adam Blake. It's It came out on a small R&B label in the New York area in the early 60s. Um, and a group called the J-Nets. I think various members went on to do other soul singles and stuff. But the the really fascinating fact, I mean, it's an absolutely brilliant track. It's mesmerising, and I, I think I've played it almost every time I've ever DJed. The really fascinating fact about it is that um, apparently Andy Warhol used to have, uh, love it, and he used to play the, this instrumental version on a loop for mm. hours and hours at the factory. I, I was listening to it earlier, and what, one of the really nice things, so it is, it is I presume there's a there's a, an A-side with the, with all the vocals on, because it, yeah, this, is a, is. this is the instrumental. And um, one of the nice things about it is, because of the way records were recorded then, with essentially a, a big mic in the middle of the room and the band playing around it, um, the, the vocal might have been off into in a booth somewhere, but you can just hear a little bit of it. You can just yeah, hear that's right. It's like the ghost of, of the vocal. Yeah. Yeah. on the label as well we actually we paid tribute to that idea on on our single corner shop single what did the hippie have in his bag and on the back we put an instrumental uh, and put sing along without corner shop on the label <laughs> yeah it's a great idea <laughs> but i love the groove of that song it's just it's just brilliant i presume you, you play it would you play it out when you're DJing a lot? Do you, do you find yeah. that people miss the the vocals? <laughs> you know, sometimes no, I it, think yeah, people just seem to 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 get into the groove and mm. and you know, it's just a great great track. So where did you where did you find this yourself? Where were you when you actually discovered this? Like I say, my Adam Blake, our sitar player, played it to us in his. Um, he had like a bed sit in Notting Hill yeah. years ago, and I remember him reaching up into. a uh, kitchen cabinet pulling out his box of seven inches and playing it um, <laughs> I, and I tracked down a copy I can't remember where I found a copy but I did I, I shortly afterwards I found a copy it's not it's not in it's not too hard to find do you go in for that kind of uh search out the the mega rare 20 made sort of copies of singles or is that not no not, some, not, some not. people really go for that do you know what I mean and some people just buy records yeah, I'm the, I'm definitely the latter. I, I don't um, I don't really look after my records, to be frank. Um, <laughs> a lot of my covers and records are a bit maltreated, I suppose. <laughs> but I yeah, I think records are, are to be used, they're to be played, and they shouldn't be boxed yeah. away. Um, yeah, no, I agree totally. I and, like the idea uh, of your man pulling it out of the kitchen cupboard as well. Yeah, well, I've got <laughs> records in my kitchen cupboard cupboards now as well. You do run out of room after a while. <laughs> You know you've got a proper problem when you when you when your kitchen's starting to get the, no no put the flour in the other room. I need yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, but I mean going back to your original question, I I don't um, I don't seek out records for the sake of them being rare. I I always it's always because it's a good song, mm. or that's first and foremost for me for a good recording. You know, with all of your travel and touring. Um, with corner shop did that kind of did you take that opportunity to do a lot of record shopping overseas and stuff oh did we ever yeah me, me and <laughs> me and Tajinda every time we we pulled into uh 
especially it was harder in Europe sometimes to find the shops and that mm. it, was, it was always it was good in I remember it was always good in Holland but yeah in America every time we took pulled up in a town we'd um say we're doing the loading we'd disappear to the nearest record shop <laughs> and mm. uh, come back with whatever we could find we had some amazing experiences there was a shop in San Francisco I remember we went in and there were so many records in the upstairs bit that we had to, you had to climb over boxes of records to get to other boxes. <laughs> it was it was really crazy. It's like just you kind of felt a bit worried that if some of the boxes tumbled, you might never come out. Man's <laughs> 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 What a way to go, though. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And there was another amazing shop we found in the in the Midwest somewhere. Because um, we sometimes you you turn up and ask where the nearest record shop was and. Mm. You know, you you'd struggle to find somewhere. But I remember we were driven somewhere to 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 a shop, and um, it looked like it was just on a small run of shops, maybe five shops in a row. And uh, the bloke, it was like all toys in the in the window and stuff. And you went in, and there's a tiny rack of records, and we were like, "Oh no, this is mm. crazy! It's like there's about six albums there. There's nothing." And then he said, "Oh, you come to look for records?" <laughs> and he opened the back door, and there was just boxes and boxes and boxes of of seven inches and albums and it's like a warehouse it's incredible but the thing is when when it's when there's that many records it becomes a bit overwhelming Mm. you know it's too much i was gonna say especially if you've got a gig that night yeah (laughs) like where do you because that's the thing it's like the more boxes of records there are the more likely it is you're missing out on something if you leave without looking through every single box yeah, trouble. we had that 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 horrible feeling of like, oh, but we've only got an hour. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, of course, you're looking at all these. Um, you know that you know you're in America. Uh, it's it's where it's all coming from, and uh, you know they've probably been sat in that dusty old back room for you know 20 30 years. Mm. And you must be looking at just lots and lots of labels and names that you've no idea what they sound like or who they are but yeah. it just you get a feeling like i'm looking at the the cover for this janet's thing and the, it's on tough records and there's mm. a beautiful hand-drawn boxing glove as the logo uh, for tough records and it's a, tough's in big capitals over the top and records in like fine handwriting underneath all in a circle and mm. without knowing what this record sounded like i'd be tempted just to buy it because you think oh look at yeah. that little yeah. slice of americana yeah i mean we we would often pick up things on, on spec, looking at labels and years and um, sometimes sleeves. Tajinda's got an incredible collection of um, gospel records he's picked up over mm. the years this way, and um, yeah, it's, yeah, some really strange ones as well. Yeah. Oh, there's nothing better. I remember I was in um, I was in the states and I I went to this record shop in Baton Rouge where a lot of stuff was was sealed. Um, and like, it's so tempting sometimes to just buy something that looks cool. And like nine times out of 10, you get it home if you haven't listened to it in the shop and it's kind of disappointing or it doesn't meet expectations. But this was like some kind of self-pressed anti-drug sort of electro hip hop record <laughs> with like a picture on the front of like these. Uh, it's like a blue record cover. It's got these chains and handcuffs on the front and it's called Drugs Don't Do It. And there's no record label. It's like somebody self-pressed this. And I was just like, there is no way that this isn't going to be amazing. And I took it home. It's like one of, I played at the social all the time, actually. It's like one, and people ask me what it is. And I'm just like, I could tell you, but there's kind of no point. But uh, yeah. there's nothing more vindicating. Even if you come home with like two kilos of crap, if there's one little gem <laughs> in the mix. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, private pressing records are fascinating. They really are. Because mm. often there was only a hundred made of them and stuff yeah. and they can be. You, you can be one of, you know, just a few people that have it. And, and, and you can often pick them up for a couple of quid, you know, mm. or you used to be able to. Yeah. A lot of those gospel records especially were, you know, the, the groups would be that town's church and, and, the, and the congregation of that church. And they would press up those records ostensibly as a fundraiser for that church at Easter or whatever. And there's hundreds and thousands of these tiny little runs of records out there, mm. you know. Uh, Greg Belson's a great DJ. He's been doing loads of gospel compilations recently. Um, we hope to have him on the show soon, actually. Um, but it, it, he just picks up gem after gem after gem of these tiny little groups that never made it out of their town because they weren't really doing it to be a famous group. You know, they were doing it yeah. essentially as a, as a charity, you know, as, as a fundraiser. Fascinating area to, to dig into. 
Yeah. And you can often spot those records as well because they look so strange. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, a good a good hand-drawn cover or a picture of some people wearing very dated fashion is what I like to look for. <laughs> if, yeah. If, if they're wearing really bad clothes or it's all hand-drawn, I'm buying it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, I mean the other the other thing that you can sometimes find are the um kind of like one-off acetate pressings that people could make in their 50s and 60s where they'd go in a booth and just make a record yeah, like yeah. one take recording i find those fascinating because they're real they're real moments in time um, and complete one-offs and sometimes it's just nonsense and but it's an interesting window on the past you know mm, for definitely, sure definitely. so well obviously the, the world is is a bit closed down at the moment and uh, things are broken but um have you got plans or are we just waiting for the for the clouds to part what's what's next for you and for the band um well we're we're going to probably reissue the bubbly core record on vinyl for the first time and and we're just slowly working on new ideas uh, as soon as we can i guess but it's a bit yeah. hard at the moment you zoom in <laughs> yeah and i think also you know we feel that there, there's still a little bit of life left in this one a lot of people oh, still talking yeah, about yeah. it. Um, and we've done a few different runs of different coloured vinyls so people can, even if they're just, even if people are just picking up the record now, they, they'll still have maybe um, something that can become quite collectible because it's only like one of 500 of a certain colour, you know? Mm. Mm. That's my old uh, vinyl factory head coming. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know how it works. Yeah. Yeah, or how it can work, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Well, it's been lovely talking to you today. Thank you for sharing your phonographic memories with us. And, uh, Pleasure. And thank, and thank you so much for uh, for England as a garden. For it, it, it did feel like I had a garden here in London for a little while while that was playing. And it really kept kept my head sane during the darker months of the lockdown so thank you very much for that mm. Thanks, Thanks. Ben. hello there hi hello hope you enjoyed this podcast and this edition of what goes around if you did the very least that you can do for us well the least you could do is nothing but if you want to do one step above the least you could like and subscribe to this podcast and most importantly tell your friends please spread the word if you know anyone who you think would enjoy this pod do go ahead and tell them uh, and uh, allow us to welcome them to our wonderful listenership you can catch up with us on social media as well if you like what goes pod on twitter and instagram just to be difficult uh, what goes around podcast on facebook and if you want to send us an email let us know what you thought of the episode recommend stuff to us if you are also a peloton user please send me your username so we can high five each other during rides what goes pod at gmail.com is the place to go and please join us for the next episode where the hilarious joe caulfield is going to be sharing her phonographic memories catch you then